Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so the lesson this morning is going to be in Titus 3, 1 and 2, just those two verses. And uh, this lesson is a part of a year-long series that the church here has been um, doing, going through Titus once a month in a sermon through the entire year. Uh, so I'll do some kind of contextual things uh, to bring us into the lesson here in these two verses. Um, but technically, this is October's lesson. Uh, so next week, I'll be doing another Titus lesson, Lord willing, for um, November's lesson. Um, obviously, I wasn't here in October. My wife and I, we were in Africa, for those who aren't members of the church here. Um, we were in Africa visiting um, my sister, my wife's brother uh, in Africa. Uh, technically, I was visiting my sister-in-law there as well. But anyway, so Titus 3, 1 and 2. Um, so just some things about the context here. Remember in chapter 1, Titus was in Crete. And in Crete, kind of remember the nature of the culture here in verse 12. So chapter 1, verse 12. Paul mentions that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this is a quote from someone else who lived in Crete, who was a part of the culture. And then in verse 13, Paul says, this testimony is true. So people in Crete need to be rebuked sharply or severely that they may be sound or healthy in their faith. And in this culture, Titus was charged to appoint elders in every church. And the applications we've looked at in chapter 2 were extremely counterculture, countercultural. And the idea is who we are to be, we are to be a people defined by the culture of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom and the culture of God's kingdom can thrive even when everyone else around us is living in a way aggressively opposed to godly principles. We don't need the culture around us to become more Christ-like when they're not even Christians. What we need to do is focus more on Christ and do what Christ calls us to do and be the people Christ calls us to be, no matter what the culture around us may be. Uh, it gives us the opportunity to shine much more brightly. But be mindful that, again, if you were here for the scripture reading, these particular instructions in the first two verses of chapter 3 are surrounded by grace. So I'll go ahead and read from chapter 2, 11 again through chapter 3, verse 8. But try to take note of that, that chapter 3, 1 and 2, these particular instructions are surrounded both before and afterwards very immediately by statements that are drenched in the grace of God is our motive for doing these things. So chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, 
through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. All right, so a couple more just introductory things, um, maybe more immediately with verses one and two here. Because these instructions are surrounded by grace and by what Jesus has done for us, um, there's a couple of things I think we need to understand. Uh, these are not natural applications. So these are not things that we're to think are just naturally achieved or self-achieved. Um, and they are not just minor adjustments we're to make in our lives. You know, think about these as transformative instructions, right? So Jesus came to transform us, take us from lawlessness to being righteous, godly, sensible, obedient. Um, so think about these qualities as extensions of this grace that Christ has brought to us and extensions even of Christ himself. The other thing about this is because these are transformative, um, don't be discouraged when we see uh, deficiencies in ourselves related to these instructions or uh, maybe even an absence of applying these things. I think it can be easy uh, to think about the transformative nature in, of the gospel for people who have not learned it yet. And I think we can make at least something that I tend to do that I think um, we all struggle with is we make exceptions for ourselves. And instead of being encouraged by my conviction of an application I see I need to do better at, instead I, I get discouraged. Instead of being encouraged that, you know what, Christ can transform me. And by the grace of God, I can learn how to do this better. I can repent if I need to repent. And I can be comforted and encouraged by the patience exhibited in salvation. So Think about these things as transformative in that if there is any insufficiency, then that means we can also be transformed and made more like Jesus in these ways. Um, and because these are so countercultural, I think it's helpful with verse one of chapter three. The first word I see is remind them. Remind. Why do we need to be reminded? <laughs> Since these things, I think, are more tied to the grace of God and less to what may be natural for us, we have to acknowledge that we are going to be pressured both from things in our environment, but also because of what's more familiar to ourselves within ourselves. There will be inner temptations. There will be outward pressure to not do these things. So these are not just applications that are to be just one sermon ever, but I want to encourage you that these are things we need to remind each other of in our relationships as well and need to be talked about often. There's a danger of forgetting these things. Therefore, we need to be reminded of these things and they need to be reinforced. All right. So the lesson's really just going to be split in half with one slide dedicated to verse one and one dedicated to verse two. And I would just say the summary for verse one is we need to be obedient and ready to do good works. So we're going to start just quality by quality here. There's three qualities in verse one, with the first one being subject to rulers and authorities. And I think the idea of this is we need to respect those who are in authority. We need to listen to people in authority and submit to people who are in positions of authority. Now, with kind of the reality of this, we mentioned already in chapter one, the culture of Crete was very corrupt. So how do you think the political situation would be on a place like Crete? <laughs> 
What would be the condition of politicians, the laws that they would pass, right? So just kind of keep that in mind that uh, Paul is telling Titus to instruct Christians in an immoral and corrupt political climate that they still need to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now think about this even with Jesus. Did Jesus live in a culture in Palestine that was politically put together? Was it politically the way that it should have been based on the law of Moses? Absolutely not. Uh, with the Herods having a rule over the Palestinian region, the corruption of the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, let alone the bigger Roman Empire, Jesus lived in a culture that was politically corrupt. And by the way, Jesus's culture was actually a political system designed by God. And even that culture was completely corrupt when Jesus was born into it. How did Jesus handle that? You know, did Jesus think we've got to fix the government first and then we can get with, get to fixing the common people? That wasn't his approach. And think about even how silent he was about the political issues of his day. And mind you, the culture of Jesus's day was extremely divided and politically extremely sensitive. How did he handle that? So we have to weigh out, I think, really carefully in what ways might our mentality about politics be much more influenced by our environment rather than by the word of God, right? I think we get it backwards sometimes where, again, we might adjust maybe some political things based on the Bible. But I want to argue we need to start with the Bible from the ground up and then build everything on top of that. So when we're interacting with people in authority, when we're thinking about people in authority, we've got to start biblically first not just make minor adjustments, but really transform our perspective based on that. Uh, so practically, with these principles, how do I respond then when something happens like getting a traffic ticket? Um, what's my attitude towards police officers when they give me a traffic ticket? Um, they don't show me mercy. Um, what about when someone in authority treats me harshly? What about when I've actually done nothing wrong and I'm being treated in a way as if I've done something wrong by a police officer? How did Jesus respond when he was innocent and had nothing done nothing wrong and was treated as if he was guilty? So again, we just have to be really careful about building our attitude from the ground up, even when it's unnatural, feels foolish, uh, and is not something that is encouraged by our environment or our culture at all. So when is this most difficult? I think it's most difficult when we get in trouble and we would rather not deal with consequences or we're inconvenienced or when things happen politically that obviously we passionate, dis passionately disagree with. Um, so last thing on this note would be, do you think that there's going to be temptation to not think in an honorable way about people in authority come this next election cycle, 2024? Um, I think it can be wise to look ahead <laughs> And think there's probably going to be a lot of volatile conversations on Facebook, social media. There's probably going to be a lot of opportunity for some volatile conversations at work, at school, with friends, maybe even with family, maybe even with brethren. And we got to remember these things when it matters the most. And especially if you're in a habit of having political conversations, which is not a bad thing, by the way, we can be politically passionate. We just have to keep it balanced with what God, with what God says. But if you're in the habit of having political conversations and let's say even passionate ones, people may look to you to maybe have, um, some inappropriate opinions about certain issues that maybe 
some self-control and quietness would actually be much more honoring to God than always having an opinion about things when that could easily be taken too far. So I just want to urge you, um, look ahead, be cautious, remember what the Bible says more than anything, even when it feels unnatural and maybe even foolish uh, to have more self-control related to those things. Second quality is we are to be obedient. And this seems very straightforward, <laughs> but obedience is a struggle. Again, what does our environment uh, encourage and maybe what's more familiar? Uh, if you look at verse three, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. We are always going to be drawn to what is more familiar. And the reality is, this might sound really strange, but being disobedient feels better <laughs> and feels more rewarding sometimes. It makes more sense. Being obedient, having an obedience-oriented mentality, caring about instruction, whether, again, that's with God's word, whether that's related to people in positions of political authority, whether that's your boss at work, uh, no matter what it is, having an obedience-oriented mentality where you are willing to give careful attention to instruction and just do what you're told, I think very often that can look very, very foolish. But again, you have to remember, <laughs> the cross, the message of the cross, the applications of the cross are foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, no matter how I might feel, remember what came before these instructions and what comes after Jesus came into the world so that I could be obedient. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that I could have an obedient-oriented mentality. So we need to give careful attention to instruction. But I want to advocate for this, something more in principle, behind the scenes with this instruction. Obedience really is the key to maturing in humility. And I would say maturity, maturing in humility, is one of the most important aspects of our faith and our relationship with God and humility is the key component for maturing in humility. Philippians 2, uh, it's not 228, it's just 28. Uh, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him, giving him a name which is above every name. Obedience trains us to see ourselves from the right perspective. Obedience trains us to remember what's most important. And it helps us focus that when God says something, we just need to do it. With the qualities that we're reading as well, obedience goes further than just do or do not. Think about Jesus's example in his life. What did Jesus's obedience to God look like compared to everybody else? Had anybody ever seen a life like Jesus's life before? And I don't just mean the miracles he performed. I mean the lengths that he took instructions that a Jew would have been familiar with, but they would have never seen someone take that application to the kind of extent Jesus took it. The reason why obedience is so critical to our faith is there is so much subtlety to application. Like love can be a theory, either I do or do not, but there is so much subtlety to love. There's so much subtlety to compassion. There's so, there's so much subtlety to subjection and being humble even before others in relationships. Obedience matters when we are trying to take God's instructions and apply them to a point where there is personal subtlety to what we are doing with the will of God. Where it's not just, yeah, I guess conceptually in some theory, I'm loving others. Or yeah, I guess in some theory, I'm willing to subject myself to the rulers and to authorities. How far are you willing to take that? 
the principles of what God instructs, we need to be taking it to a point where even there is subtlety in it. And those things will humble us, it'll change our thinking, and God will dig deeper into our hearts. Okay, last thing about this. Obedience helps us listen because we need to memorize things that we're told to do. So again, verse one, we need to be reminded of these things. And so it's not just that God gives us an instruction and maybe we hear it once, we apply it for a week, and it kind of echoes slowly out of our minds. Uh, we need to be reminded of these things because we need them presently and actively in our minds. So when God gives us an instruction, we need to memorize it and carry it with us. You know, how difficult is it to just think, I need to be obedient? <laughs> you kind of let that not just echo and fade out, but you presently try to memorize that. And we'll try to kind of talk about that with these other instructions as well. But obedience trains us to listen better because we really need to keep things more presently in our mind to more proactively obey the things that God tells us that we need to do. We need to be ready for every good work. Um, this is one of those things that is, uh, again, uh, easier to think theoretically than it is to think more subtly and practically about. I think the way that I would maybe say this in different words is to be ready for every good work implies that I need to be ready to unexpectedly sacrifice time that I wasn't expecting I would have to sacrifice, give energy, sacrifice energy I wasn't expecting to give, and sacrifice resources that I wasn't expecting to give. Again, think about this with Jesus as example. Was Jesus ready for every good work? And what did that look like for him? You know, is Jesus okay with being interrupted? <laughs> with having his time interrupted? Would he give time to people when it was needed? Um, so I think there's some personal questions we've got to think about when we relate this to Jesus's example and think about this in terms of giving time, energy, and resources uh, when it's unexpected. If you're not willing to do what is uncomfortable, if you kind of have your niche and you've got kind of, you know, your pace where this is what I'm comfortable doing and that's all you're willing to do. You've kind of, again, you found your comfort zone. You've got where you feel like you've got a pace with what you're doing. But if you're only willing to do what is comfortable, are you really ready for every good work? Um, if you're only willing similarly to do what you like to do or to do what you're already good at, are you really ready for every good work? Well, let's say that you're willing to do something uncomfortable. But the way that you respond is begrudgingly. And you'll do it, but you'll kind of make a fuss about it. And you'll be really clear, even if it's just with grunting and groaning about it, that really, you'd just rather not do it instead of striving to have a good attitude. If you'll respond, but, but respond begrudgingly, are you really ready for every good work? With your resources, 1 Timothy chapter 6 talks about how those who are rich in this world need to be rich in good works, ready to share. If how you use your money is always focused on yourself or even only your family, and you never think about the need to be more generous with what you have, and I don't just mean the church's collection. That's just a smidgen, I think, of the greater context of a Christian's generosity I think it's really fair that a Christian, again, this is maybe opinion, but based on 1 Timothy 6.18, we need to be ready to be generous. That may mean we need to set aside resources specifically for generosity. And we need to be thinking more proactively about that, more in our personal lives with our personal expenses. Does that mean 
Maybe I need to spend less money on myself and my pleasures. At times it does. Does that mean where maybe to help someone in need, I've got to make a personal sacrifice of food for myself or changing plans for myself? It may mean that. But I think more than those things, go back to chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. This is something that we had talked about in more length in this sermon on on this section. But chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being detestable and disobedient. And note this, they are unfit for any good work. Can a person outwardly seem to do the right thing, but inwardly be completely defiled and corrupt? (laughs) Absolutely. We've got to see things the more, we need to see things more like God does. To really be ready for every good work, I think is not just a commitment that I'm willing to sacrifice my time. I'm willing to try to do what I'm uncomfortable with, even if I do it in a way that I think is poor and could be done better. Um, It means we need to prioritize a pure mind and a pure conscience as well. I would say that's one of the highest priorities from a godly perspective, really being prepared for good work. I'm going to reuse an illustration that I used when I did a lesson on this. Imagine you're at a restaurant and you get a hamburger, right? And let's say it's even the best hamburger you've ever eaten. It's delicious. And you find out, though, after you're finished eating, that the cook in the back who prepared your hamburger is actually incredibly sick. He never washes his hands. And I don't mean just at work, like literally, he never washes his hands. He's sick. He never washes his hands. He doesn't wash the dishes he uses or or his utensils. It's all just constantly being reused. It's never sanitized. And also the kitchen is in incredibly disgusting, filthy conditions. You know, you see cockroaches coming out of the back doors. And are you going to remember that experience fondly? And are you even going to want to keep that burger in your stomach? You know, you may wish you hadn't eaten or you could just throw it up, right? So even though that burger may have tasted good, when you find out the condition the person was in who prepared it, It's no longer appetizing anymore. And that's like the mind and the conscience. We may do what on the surface seems to be good, but if our mind and our conscience are defiled, what does chapter 1 verse 16 say? If we profess to know God and we make some external kind of show of having an identity with God, but internally, my mind and my conscience, hidden away from view, are completely corrupt. From God's perspective, am I really doing good works, even if I'm leading songs, leading the Lord's Supper, even teaching a sermon? Is that still a good work from God's perspective? To be ready for every good work, we have to prioritize having a pure mind and a pure conscience first. And that's what makes us fit for every good work. All right, verse two, to be peaceable and considerate. So verse 2, I'll go ahead and read this again. Um, To slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. Your translation might say to show uh, every consideration to all men or perfect courtesy to all people. So number one, to slander no one. Um, And I would say this is just we need to be very cautious and very tender-hearted in the nature and the purpose of what we say about others. And you notice the emphasis on no one. So there's kind of some complete statements. We need to be prepared for every good work. And we need to show consideration to all men. We also need to speak evil of, slander, no one. So no exception here. 
And with being tenderhearted, we just have to be, again, ready to be convicted and ready to repent without resisting that. Look at verse 3 again. Uh, I want to advocate that this is tempting because this is what's more familiar. We ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. Uh, slander or to speak evil of people, it's familiar. It's the language of the world. It's the language the world speaks. Um, again, there's, there's balance to this where Paul said in chapter 1, you know, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. Chapter 116, what we saw, what we saw about those who profess to know God, some pretty severe language there. And then even in chapter 3, verse uh, 10, talks about rejecting a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that that person is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. So there's maybe some nuance of, you know, if there's a problem with someone, Sometimes acknowledging sin for what it is and choices a person is making and just being very real about that can be an important thing. And talking about a problem that someone is going through in a way where, hey, we really need to understand how to approach this and help solve this because here's the situation. Again, there, there may be some nuance there, but really we just have to be super careful about when we're frustrated with someone, we're disappointed in someone. You know, we've had just about enough of someone. We've just got to be really, really careful about going too far and be honest and be reflective. All right, last thing about this. I think we need to be careful with mockery as humor. Um, I think if you were to, if you're to think about this, if you're to memorize this, we're to slander no one, speak evil of no one. One of the subtleties of this, in my opinion, <laughs> is how apparent it becomes that the world revolves around this as entertainment and humor. That if we're not careful, uh, speaking evil of people and mocking people uh, can be very, very funny and is at the heart of a lot of entertainment. And I think if you kind of stop yourself and think like, what's, what's, what's being made fun of here? <laughs> um, what is this really? And should I really find this funny? And I think the idea of this is to slander, to speak evil of people, uh, even if it's making light out of it, I think we need to be careful about finding those things entertaining. And again, that'll make us, that'll kind of narrow in, <laughs> I think, how much entertainment is really entertaining, may be difficult, and may kind of create even awkward conversational situations. Maybe awkwardly, we've got to make some pretty serious changes with uh, just even how we talk, what we make jokes about. But remember, what surrounds these instructions, Jesus literally came into the world, and he died, and he rose from the dead. So that we would think differently about speaking evil of people and that we wouldn't leave any part of our lives off limits to that, even if it to us seems so important to our identity and what we enjoy. All right. We need to be peaceable and gentle. And how I would summarize this is we need to maintain and pursue genuine love with people, even while being trampled on. And the language I use there is because I think Jesus exhibited most clearly what it means to be peaceable and gentle when he was being mistreated leading up to being crucified and when he was crucified. Uh, how is Jesus peaceable and gentle? He maintained genuine love. Even when people were slapping him, spitting on him, punching him, whipping him, they set him up on the cross, they nailed his hands and feet into the wood and they mocked him, they stripped him of his clothes, clothing, 
And I believe Jesus was stark naked on the cross. They were doing everything they could to, I think, trigger his anger, but also make him look as just humiliating, as detestable as they could possibly make him look to the public view. What did Jesus do? He not only maintained genuine love, I believe quietly in the secret places of his heart, Jesus was still pursuing genuine love. He was fighting for it. Remember in Luke, something that's only said in Luke when Jesus was crucified, it says, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. That's astonishing to me. Be peaceable, be gentle. We need to maintain and pursue genuine love while other people are trampling on us. And the thing is, this is not insincere. You know, there's times where I think we just have to grit our teeth, have self-control, and be merciful. But I think this isn't meaning that we're just gentle when we're face-to-face and in the midst of a conversation, and then we leave and we harbor deeper bad thoughts about that person and about that interaction. And I think that's the real battle of what it means to be peaceable and gentle. Again, we're not just talking about something shallow on the outside. We are talking about an inner transformation here. We're talking about applying this to the point of subtlety. Jesus, when he was, when he was abused, was not just gritting his teeth and bearing it while harboring bad thoughts toward his abusers on the inside. Jesus equips us to deal with the filth of life and the filth of people. And he uniquely equips us, unlike any other worldly philosophy or any other kind of teaching in the world, he uniquely equips us to not be destroyed as we're dealing with that filth. So I need to learn to filter hostile thoughts, disappointments, frustration, and anger through Christ and through prayer. We really got to learn this. It is a discipline. Again, this isn't natural. I think we all struggle with this. We have hard conversations. We think bad thoughts. Someone says something we disagree with, we think bad thoughts. And I don't just mean one or two of us. This is a struggle of our humanity. It is a struggle of what is more familiar to us, right? This is how Jesus came to transform us. We've got to learn how to have hard conversations, hard relationships, see people in their weakness, have people confess things that are hurtful to us. And we don't become hostile. We don't become harsh. We learn the discipline of filtering those things through Christ's example and through prayer. It is a discipline. It requires self-denial, but it is critical to our relationships together and our relationships with people in the world as well. What this does, the end result, is it makes us approachable and we become trustworthy. What this means is I can be someone you can talk to. You can trust me, and I'll take you seriously. It means you can tell me anything. You can tell me the hardest things, and we will strive to have self-control in how we listen. You can vent. You can talk about nasty things, and we are just going to try to listen and respond in a way that is Christ-like. It equips us to work through any problem. Nothing's off limits. If a husband and a wife will be peaceable and gentle with each other, a husband and a wife can confess some pretty nasty struggles and they can disagree and feel some pretty nasty things against each other. And they will be able to work through that and communicate through that. And they'll be able to do that relentlessly and they will solve their problems. This equips openness and communication, not turning a cold shoulder or thinking, you know, 
ignoring them and dismissing them is going to solve a problem. Oftentimes that's actually what makes it worse. Um, and you see prayers, gritty prayers, especially in the Old Testament and in the Psalms, gritty prayers where the people praying to God will sound like they're accusing him. But I think it's they, they, they have confidence God is peaceable. God is gentle. And there are some honest prayers in the Bible because they know to work through problems requires sometimes hard communication. We need to have that with God, but we also need to have that with each other. All right. Show every consideration for all men. I have no summary rewording of that. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and we can, we can understand that, I think, pretty clearly. But we need to be showing every consideration for all men. Again, this is without any exception. So this idea of all men is a point of emphasis for this. Just like we're to slander no one, we're to show consideration for everyone. And so I think there's always going to be people, sometimes it's the people we're closest to, that we tend to make exception for. Where, you know, I'll show consideration maybe for those people, but this person, they don't deserve it. <laughs> they don't earn it. <laughs> they don't repay me well enough for me to continue doing that. No, Jesus came, Jesus died, and he rose from the dead so that we would show every consideration, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Um, so what's what's involved in this? Um, we need to exercise a degree of kindness and compassion that is entirely unwarranted except by Jesus. Meaning we need to be kind and be understanding. We need to hope all things and believe all things in others in a way that literally it makes no sense <laughs> except by Christ. So we've read verse 3 now multiple times. God's kindness and compassion makes no sense. Verse 4, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God's kindness toward us, his consideration, makes no natural sense. We were enemies of God, hostile against him. And our sin is embodied in the treatment Jesus endured when he was crucified. That is the embodiment of each and every one of us rebelling against God fundamentally. God shows us a consideration that transcends natural understanding. What are we going to do with that? We have to show a kindness and consideration that again, the environment we're in, there's no reason for it. It will make us feel foolish. It might even make us look foolish. It may at times even make us look foolish to brethren. But we've got to take this far, right? We're not just do or do not, subtlety. We want to apply this to a point where there is subtlety in how we are thinking about this. There is nuance to our applying it. So I think we have to think, how far can this be taken? How often can something like this be applied? I think it demands that I just am constantly thinking outside of myself. And by the way, can you see how that would bring us more joy? <laughs> if we're in the habit of focusing on what is outside of ourselves and not just on ourselves, so I want you to think about just some situations that I think ah, very imperfectly point to ways this can be applied. I'm at a restaurant. The waiter or the waitress is just frankly doing a very bad job. <laughs> They're not taking the order correctly. They're going slow. They're ignoring our table. We get our order and the order is messed up. How do I talk about that? How do I make conversation with people at my own table? Do I speak evil about them? Or do I find some way to just show compassion, 
to that person who in that moment, I could just trash them, rip them to shreds with my words and get frustrated and angry. That intimate moment is a time to show every consideration. Traffic, you know, someone cuts me off in traffic. Someone's driving like an absolute lunatic. You know, they're driving in a way where it looks like they're going to cause an accident. Do I become angry? Do I let myself start thinking bad thoughts? Or do I find some way that maybe even seems foolish to have self-control, not only with my words, but even with my thoughts and fight within myself to show some compassion? Think about marriage. You come home to your wife after your day. What would it look like coming home to your wife to show her every consideration? Your husband comes home. What would it look like to show him every consideration when he comes home? This demands the highest, most important quality of real self-control, where I am willing to put myself underneath everybody. I am willing to put everybody else ahead of me. I am genuinely like Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. I will really try to think about others as more important than myself, and I will think about the interests of others ahead of my own. Humble people also are not going to vocalize every time they're hurt by something. And I think that's just a hard reality. Someone who's humble is not just going to be constantly telling you, hey, that hurt me. (laughs) That hurt my feelings, what you said back there. We just have to realize people are oftentimes more sensitive than they put on, and that doesn't make them babies. We just really are designed to have tender hearts, and so there's so many things that can hurt us. It doesn't mean that we need to walk on eggshells around each other. It just means we've got to be just aware that it's important to give thought to other people and not bulldoze through interactions. We've got to be thoughtful. We need to be compassionate. And the reality is we want people to consider us. We want people to show us courtesy and kindness. We just need to love people the way that we want to be loved. All right. Lastly, it's not that we demand this. It's not even that we seek it. You know, this isn't show others consideration for the consideration they show you. It's not look for consideration from others. Again, we need to maintain and pursue genuine love even while being trampled on. All of this pushes us to have some deep inward struggles that refine our faith. They make us more patient. They make us more genuine. And if we think about people in a way rooted in these instructions, we will love people in a way much closer to the love that we are loved by through Jesus, by God himself. All right, I want to read these two verses, and then uh, afterwards, I'll say a word of prayer. And then after that, if anyone is convicted by the lesson or sees a need for confession of anything or encouragement in your faith, we reserve the end of our assembly for that. So I'll read these two verses, and let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll have the invitation song. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, gentle, uh, peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. So pray with me.